Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 202. Let me begin with uh, congratulating all those that submitted essays. We've received hundreds and hundreds of essays from both the United States and all over the world, and of course Israel as well. Many, many Hebrew essays. And uh, our judging and evaluation has begun. So firstly, I want to commend you all for putting the effort and work. And as I've seen in previous years, and we've all seen, tremendous um, a tremendous effort that has been invested in this, and as well as, of course, the results of really powerful essays, creative, original, diverse, really covering the entire spectrum of life. So feel your winners already. But we will now begin the evaluation, and uh, we have a series of judges because we do this in several tiers because of the number amount of uh, essays. Every essay is read by several judges, and they're all blindly judged, so no one has a clue who is who wrote the essay that they're reading. The, just to give you a, a selection of some of the top prestigious judges, they include this year Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Brower in alphabetical order. Rabbi Dr. Yitzchak Shakiris, Rabbi Dr. Shimon Cowan, Rabbi Zilman Dubinsky, Rabbi Osher Farkash, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson, Rabbi Dr. Shmuel Klatskin, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Offen, Rabbi David Oldot, and Rabbi Reuven Wolf, among others. But I mentioned those, they're more or less well-known, prestigious, distinguished teachers and educators and knowledgeable, greatly knowledgeable in Chassidus and Teda in general, and especially in its application. And uh, with the next few weeks, we'll be busy with this evaluation. And approximately right before Pesach, around Yud Aleph Nissen, we will announce the winners. So thank you again for com- contributing to this, participating in it. And, uh, and now the countdown begins. I'll keep you posted as we go and uh, keep the momentum and the buzz going. So again, tremendous effort of taking chsidis, which is the ultimate purpose of taking chsidis, applying it to contemporary issues of life. Okay, with that, let us go right into where we just began, entered the month of Adr, and the language of Chazal, Mishaniknes Adr, as we enter Adr, Marben Besimcha, we increase in joy. Joy is, of course, a crucial component in all success in life, being able to fulfill our calling and achieving all things. When you do it with joy, it's always achieved in a far greater and max, to maximum effect. And as the Rebbe explains, Mishanichnas Adar means Mailam Bekedish, so even though we already entered other every day, we increase in that inherent joy that each of us has, as we discussed last week and previous episodes, the power of joy. Specifically, this week, we're going to focus on the two days, the special days, Zion Adar and Tess Adar, which come later in the week. Zayin Oder, of course, is the birthday and the Yorzeit of Moshe Rabbeinu. And Tess Oder is the day that the Friedrich Rebbe came to America in 1940. So now we're in 2018, so we're talking about 78 years ago. On this week, when he arrived at these shores and began a new stage in the spreading of Chassidus and preparing the world for the Geula, which we'll talk about. We're also in the week of Pasha Tetzaveh, and Tesava this week, this Shabbos, will, this coming Shabbos, we'll also be reading one of the four parshias, the four additional chapters that we read during these weeks between 
essentially from the beginning of Adar till Pesach, till before Pesach, and we're now in the second of these four parshas, which is Parsha Zohar, which is always read the Shabbos before Purim. Zohar Asher to remember what Amalek did to us. This is a schida, this is a reminder before we actually erase Amalek and Haman, the Megillah and the story of Purim. So the Shabbos before, we remember it through reading the Parsha Zohar. Only Parsha Nateira that is considered to be reading of Daraisa, that it's a mitzvah Daraisa to listen to this Parsha, according to all opinions. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll go into some of the t- specific topics. I want to dedicate this special episode to a dear brother-in-law and friend and colleague of mine and so many, to um, the, the loving memory of Yeshaya ben Svihish upon his fifth yard site, An Zayin Adr, of the Rebbe in Harlem, in New York, and a long-time publisher and printer and supporter of the Rebbe's Teda and the Rebbe's, and the Rebbe's uh, teachings through various different channels as he did so, together with his father, Tzvi Hirsch, who did it for so many years, all the way back to the beginning of the Rebbe's leadership in the Sias, Tatov Shin Yud. So we, sell, we honor this, uh, we, we dedicate this episode in his honor. Let us talk about Zayin Adr first, and then Tess Adr, and then Tetzave and Zohar. Those are going to be the four, now because of time, try to be succinct, and also refer you, cross-reference you to other episodes where I've discussed these themes, and that's in, chapter, in episode 57, 107, and 153. As you can see, every year, this period of time, we talk about that, and the emphasis always here is not just, a le- not just a, an insight, or a, um, or an understanding of these events of this in this calendar, but most importantly with the focus on applying chesidus, the application of Zayin Adar. So Zayin Adar, as we know, is the day that both Moshe was born and the Yerzeit. And this is the day when Haman, when he threw his lots, why did he decide in the month of Adar? Because it came out in the month of Adar and he, he was happy because he knew this is the month of the, of the passing of Moshe, so he saw that as a bad omen for the Jews, the passing of their great leader. But he didn't know was that Magdim Rafula Maka, that preceding the cure, the illness was already the cure that Moshe was born. And but the birth of Moshe, in a sense, counters any of the negative things that come from his passing. In addition to the fact that we all know the passing of a tzaddik, even though it's sad at the time, but it's really the aliyah of his neshama, and he continues to give us even stronger Blessings and trans and hamshachas and all the things that anasi mahu malahal neimed the mishamish afkanu eimed mishamish just as he stood then and served us and led the people Moshe continues to be the nasi nitzchi that's why we say in Tanya chapter forty two he talks about the Moshe within each of us so when you say the birthday in the outside of Moshe it's the Moshe within each of us the archetype that gives us the power to do the Aved that we need to do. So what exactly is Moshe's uh, key power? There's many things. There's Zichru Teres Moshe Avdi. Moshe as the giver, as the interface, as the receiver, and, and, the, and, the, and the one who passed on Teres to us. Moshe Kibbal Teres But above all, as the Rebbe points out about the Rafridika Rebbe and about the Rebbe, Moshe is Moshe Rabbeinu, our Rebbe. Moshe is Reye Neman, Reye Yisrael, a shepherd. Which is why when Moshe was born on Zayin what is the first description of him? The first time when he's... Description, Moshe was a shepherd. He was born, he filled the whole house, filled up with light, but when you first describe him, he was a shepherd. As the famous message goes, that the Moshe's sensitivity 
was demonstrated that Hashem tests his leaders, both Moshe, David, and others with sheep. Moshe was a shepherd by his prospective father-in-law, Yisrael. And one day when the sheep were grazing, one sheep disappeared. Moshe was sensitive enough to recognize that and pursued and looked where the sheep is and found the sheep had wandered off, thirsty, looking at a brook of, at a brook of water, taking a sip of water. Moshe, in his profound compassion, lifted the sheep on his shoulder and brought it back to the flock. And Hashem said, if Moshe, sensitive like that to one sheep, firstly noticing among thousands of sheep that it's missing. Number two, he could have said, you know what, so it's missing, I've many other sheep. Number three, to carry it back with that type of sensitivity and recognizing, feeling that he was not sensitive to the sheep's need for drinking, Hashem said, if that's the way Moshe treats sheep, I can entrust my sheep to him, which is the B'nai so the children of Israel. That is the essence of what a, a Rebbe is, the essence of what a Moshe Rabbeinu is. So when we're in this week of Zayin Adar, and we honor that day, among all the different things of Moshe, I'm focusing on this because we live in a world which has many, many challenges. We, each one of us personally and collectively have challenges, challenges upon challenges. To know there's a Moshe, and there's a Moshe in each generation, that has that sensitivity to our basic needs. We're not talking now only the highest level of spiritual needs and Torah needs and so on. Just the basic needs of a drink of water and the sensitivity to carry us on the shoulders when need be is a tremendous uh, source of strength and confidence and empowerment because a person in prison cannot free themselves. A person who's tied up in fetters and each of us has our entanglements and our tentacles that we're trapped in, cannot free themselves. Having a Rebbe that is able to lift us up and give us strength and empower us, a Moshe Rabbeinu, and been doing so for thousands of years, and as I said, in each generation, the Moshe of each generation, that in itself is a tremendous strength to the extent that the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. I mean, it's, it's, it's repeated so many times, we sometimes lose appreciation for it. But the Gemara asked the question on the Pasuk, Va'ata, my, what is God already asking you, Moshe says in Sefer Dvarim? What is God asking? Just to fear him. So the Gemara says, Is it a small thing to fear and stand in awe of God? That Moshe says, What's he already asking you? He could have said, God is asking you to fear. Like it says in other verses. Here he's making it like it's like, What's the big thing? So the Gemara notices that and says, what do you mean what's the big thing? Having fear and awe of God is, not a, small, is a small matter. So the Gemara answers, that for Meisha it's a small thing. So the Alter Rebbe asks a basic question. That doesn't answer the question. Meisha was not speaking to himself, he was speaking to the, to, to the people. For Meisha it's a small thing. So what he was projecting that for him it's small, therefore for the people, for the people it's not a small thing, as the Gemara asks. So the, the Alter Rebbe's brilliant and, and, most, and simple answer is, there's a Moshe within each of us. And Moshe recognized that. So when he said, what am I already asking for? Because you have a Moshe within you, and because for me, Moshe, it's not a difficult thing, then it's not such a big thing for you else. Now you'll say, one second, I look in my own heart, for, to have awe and fear of God? Even Rabbi Yechem ben Zakkai, the greatest of greatest of sages of the Tanoim, on his deathbed, what did he tell his students? Halavai, may it be, Shi'alechem, that you should have You should fear God as much as you fear people. People we fear, we want to look good, we don't want to be embarrassed. And if someone's watching, it's a deterrent. 
She says, Halavai, you should fear God the same way. And he was talking to his generation. If the early generations were angels, we're like people. If they were like people, we're like the donkey of Pinchas ben Yoyed. So compared to our generation, people like ourselves, you look into your heart, is it easy to find Yerushalayim, to awe of God, and that it should affect your life? Because the point here is not just some theoretical thing, but something that you feel that God is standing over you, like he says in Perik Memala 4, chapter 41, in Tanya, that God watches over you, Hashem Nitzvah, a Boich and Kloyz Velev, and looks into your heart and is watching your every action. That's easy. And yet the Tanya, based on the Gemara, based on the Pasuk, you're making it very clear, yes, it's easy. So you say, one second, it's not easy. for The answer is because we have impediments and we're not accessing that Moshe. This is such a vote of confidence in the human being. The statement in Tanya, because the Alter Rebbe is making it a statement, and he's asked the question. So clearly, he's not saying it's relegated only to Moshe Rabbeinu. He's making it clear that it means every one of us, it's a milsa zutrasi. The fact that we don't see it is because we don't even recognize our own capacity. What do we know about our own potential? This alone is a tremendous lesson that you can bring and talk about your entire life. The great tremendous potential and the vote of confidence that the Torah from the Pasuk and the Gemara and the Tanya elaborating gives us and tells us, yes, that if you access that aspect of yourself, it's not a difficult thing to do. The fact, however, is that we're trapped in so many other distractions. So that's a Zayinada thought for all of us to think about what are we capable of? You have a moisture within you that's beating in your heart, in your soul, and it's active, and it's a matter of just opening your eyes and recognizing it. Chassidus, of course, starting from the Tanya, empowers us to do that. Because it's difficult just to imagine, to recognize, and say, you know what, yes, there's a part of my soul I say every morning, that's the level of Atzillus, that's the level of Meshulabin. We all have that within us. Tesodr, is the Moshe Rabbeinu of the sixth generation coming to America, as I said, 78 years ago, on Tess Adr, middle of the World War II, middle of the Holocaust, Friedrich Rebbe barely making it out from Riga, and then through Sweden, and then taking the trip to, um, from Stockholm to the arduous journey, which was itself filled with danger. Because remember, the U-boats of the Nazis, Yemach Shemam, were patrolling in the seas in the Atlantic, and they were sinking ships. Friedrich Rebbe, with, with a small group of his family, the Rebbe would come later with the Rebbetzin, a year and a half later, Chofches Sivan, 1941, arrived in Shor's Tesadr, Tovshin, and made it very clear from the moment that he arrived. When they took him to the Greystone Hotel, and everyone thought he wants to rest, the Friedrich Rebbe made it declared and said in, in bold and courageous words, though he was in a wheelchair, and he was in every physical way limited. However, you can say limited on a Rebbe. And he made it clear, I did not come here to save my life. I would have preferred to stay with my brethren. But Hashem wanted us to, me to come here, led me here, took me out of first Russia, forced me out of Russia, and then forced me out of Europe. Why? To demonstrate that America is not different, that we can, will have here, will establish yeshivas, and chadarim, and mikvahs, and synagogues, and shuls, and we'll have children running around with tzitzis and kippot, and we'll, have, we'll build a Jewish life here just as it was back there. What happened next on Tess Adir, 78 years ago? After the Friedrich Rebbe spoke, and I heard from eyewitnesses that were there, that he spoke just to a few people. 
20, 30 people, maybe even less, but with that whole confidence of a Rebbe, the Gansa Moshe Rabbeinu of the Ge'in Yankif of a Rebbe. And a few of the Chassidim said they want to speak to the Rebbe privately. They went into the Friedrich Rebbe and said, Rebbe, because we love and honor you so much, and we honor your father, your holy father, and we honor your holy grandfather, and your holy great-grandfather, and all the way to the Alta Rebbe, we want to tell you that we don't want you to be disappointed and hurt because you're creating expectations that are not realistic. This is not going to happen here. Friedrich Rebbe writes in his diary that when he heard these words, he listened, he said, this defined my my friends, my beloved ones. He said, writes in his diary, so you can imagine the tren was on the phone from my egen the erste Nacht of Amerikaner Boden. You can imagine the tears that fell out of my eyes the first night on American soil. Now, of course, the Friedrich Rebbe did not listen, thank God. That's what Amesha Rabbeinu is. And did what he had to do and built and began building and began sowing and began um, developing and cultivating. The Rebbe, 10 years later, would take over Tavshin Yud after Yud And we see what we have today in America and in the world. The work is still needs to be more work to be done. But to compare it back to, to, to 78 years ago, who could even compare it? What is the lesson for us? There you have an example, a perfect example, of the Meisha working in each of us. Even though we're not the Rebbe level, but the Rebbe within us, the Meisha within us, may created shluchim and shluchis. And there are people who are relatively on, on the level of our generation. But because they are bottle and dedicate themselves to the Meshaleach, so that reveals the Meisha within them that begins to pump and begins to affect and change their, the course of history change their communities, transform their environments. And this is the power each one of us has. Chassidus applied, these are the tremendous lessons of application because we're talking about what makes a person a healthy person, what makes a person an accomplished person, someone who's content, who's not busy fighting demons all the time or fighting these temptations and those difficulties. Is someone who makes this commitment exposes and reveals the Moshe within him. And then does things to transform their community, transform their environment, transform the people they come in contact with. That wherever you go, you're not part of the problem, you become part of the solution. With the power of the Moshe within you. So it's doable. So you'll say, is that the level of Milsa Zutris of Yira? Listen, Yira has many levels. There's lower levels, there's higher levels. But it's a great beginning. Because you're making an impact. And where is it coming from? Because you have awe and bitl and a certain sub, subjugation in a good positive way, sublimation, suspension of self to the desires of the Mishaleach, of the Mishrabin, of the generation, and that changes worlds. We're also in the week of Parsha Tetzave, the Atta Tetzave, the only Parsha in the Teda that doesn't mention Moshe's name after his birth. Obviously in the whole Sefer Bereshis, you don't have Moshe's name. But after his birth, it's the only Parsha that doesn't mention his name. Only Va'ata you shall command, Svarim say, because the week, this is the week when Moshe Rabbeinu is Talkus, so it's like a zecher, remember, a reminding us of Moshe's name was so-called diminished due to the Talkus. But of course, the big question is that we, we read it, remembering that. Then the day we said before the Talkus of Atzadi gives us power, Pehel Yeshua's Beket of Oretz, and all the other expressions that the Alter Rebbe uses in the Geras HaKedosh, in talking about the, the, the day of the, the Stalkus and the, and the Yotzad each year of a tzaddik's passing. It's also the birthday of Meshach Rabbeinu. So, so we have to remember that he is missing. God forbid. 
So the Rebbe explains that no, the etzim of Mesha is revealed when the giluim of Mesha are concealed. So the giluim were perhaps impacted by the istalkus. But the ato, like it says, ato reis das, is the etzim, you, loshanecha, you. You is even more than the name. A name still has a certain parameters and has definition and has an expression. It's a very high level, drawn from water. But the ato is the atzmius of Meshur Rabbeinu, and that's revealed when in the day of Zainod, both his birthday and his Zistalkus. And it's expressed where you see it, which also says in Sfarim that when Moshe stood on the mountain and was fighting for the Jewish people, talk about a shepherd, not just he protected Jewish people, he fought with God, would not take no for an answer after the building of the golden calf and fought and prevailed, and therefore we have the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day, the birth of forgiveness, the birth of hope, even after loss, even after a breaking. What did he do? He broke the tablets. He said, erase my name from this Sefer. Fatah hints to that as well, that we don't have Moshe's name, because he said it, that Tzadik says something, it lasts. You'll say again, it's a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's negative on the surface level. It was the deep Mesiris Nefesh from the Etzim of Mesha. He's ready to give away everything, his physical life, his spiritual life, his connection to Tehriv, breaking the tablets. And that's why Hashem says, I thank you for breaking them. The Rebbe is fascinating, the most powerful Sicha, Simchas Tehra Tov Zayin. The tears that flowed from the Rebbe's eyes, that Fabrengen and Simchas Tehra, explaining this last Rashi, the one in Zesa Brocha, the end of the Tehra, which we conclude on Simchas Tehra, and explaining the power of Amesha, of a Rebbe, that Tetzave, the Atat Tetzave. And Tetzave is what? From the word Tzavse that connects us. As the Rebbe speaks in the Maimon, the last Maimon he handed out, from Atat Tetzave, Tov Shemem that Kuntras, the Etzim of Mesha binds and connects with us. Yes, it comes through Kosis Lamoyer, Shem and Kosis, which means crushing and pressing the olive, but that pressing only brings out even a deeper, a deeper dimension of the essence. And finally, Zacher, Parsha Zacher. Now, Parsha Zacher seems to be complete other extreme. Suddenly, we're talking about Amalek. Here, we're talking about reaching and accessing the deepest levels of the Moshe of each generation, the Moshe Rabbeinu, and the, the Moshe within each of us, suddenly Amalek. But of course, we know that it talks about the laws of Malachim, the kings, including Mashiach, when Mashiach will come. There are the three things that there's the Minui Melech and Mechis Amalek. And the third thing, which is not relevant to our discussion right now. And uh, the Mechis HaMolek is connected because Ein HaKisei Molei, Ein Hashem Molei, God is not complete, and the throne of the king is not complete as long as there's an enemy called HaMolek. He's like, he's like the alter ego. HaMolek is the gematria of Suffolk doubts. HaMolek is Ashakar Chabaderech, paralyzes Kaltkite, indifference, apathy, so Amalek needs to be contended with. You cannot deal with Amalek unless you, um, if you don't, if you don't deal with Amalek, then the Moshe within us becomes difficult to access because you need to eliminate that. And that's why Moshe himself held his hands up in the first Muhammad and Pasha B'Shalach against Amalek because Amalek was trying to throw cold water, trying to cool off the passion. So to access the Moshe within you, be able to achieve that, you have to eliminate doubts. In Simcha Katoras Asfekis, of course, connected to other as well. 
eliminate doubts, eliminate the apathy. The war, apathy is our greatest challenge today because we don't have enemies from without quite like it was in the past. Today, the enemy is the ability we have, we're comfortable, my comfort zones. So comes this week and says, remember what Amalek did, never forget, because that, as you remember that, in direct proportion to that, you'll remember the positive thing, what Moshe does for you. And how Moshe fights for you. And how Moshe stands and gives you the strength to empower you. So even though, yes, we forge ahead with that commitment to the Moshe, and we go out in the battles that Moshe sends us to, the spiritual battles of our time, but it's critical to remember that there is an enemy lurking, and the enemy is within. The enemy, the Amalek within, the doubts, the apathy, the indifference, the procrastination, and everything that, that, that comes with it. So there you have a whole lesson in life just from these few elements. We talk Zaino, the Tesod, the Pashas Tetzava, and Pashas Zohar. So now, let us go to specific questions. The questions keep coming in. Literally today, I received at least 20 questions, new questions, and so I ask you to bear with me. I want to use this opportunity to announce um, where you can find all, where you can present and post any question in our completely anonymous forum, meaningfullife.com slash mylife, as well as see the previous episodes, the archives, which are all, all time-stamped on YouTube, so you can just go to the topic you're looking for. We have now already have, thank God, 201 episodes that were already presented. And, um, and, and the questions keep coming, so how can I say very... Uh, touched by it, that the light people are really submitting personal issues and feel that this is a forum that they can talk talk, and express themselves and being anonymous, their confidentiality is protected, which I feel honored to be able to be part of that journey and try my best to, uh, to take ideas from Chassidus and apply that to our situation, to our challenges. So of course, this past week, we all witnessed, we all heard about this tragic shootings killed 17 young students in a school. And this is not the first one. I don't know the exact numbers, 18 shootings, 20 in the last two, two years. But it's something that really strikes home. Besides the fact, completely senseless killing of young people, the entire future, and families devastated. And this is whether they're Jewish families or not. This, the pain is for all of us. We all relate to that and so on. But when it happens, particularly in a school, which is meant to be the only place that's an oasis from the hostility of life. Schools is where our children, we send our children to, to be trained, to be shaped, to be formed, to develop their values. And when it strikes there, well, they're not, the children are not at war. It's not the war zone. It's not a front line in a battle. It's not even the marketplace where people compete. I'm not suggesting that there is less of a tragedy. But in a school, you always feel there's a pristine environment. It's a certain... A, a, a protected environment, and yet this has been violated time and again. So the question, obviously, everyone has is, what, what is what's going on here? What can we do about it? In the context of Chassidus Applied, what would the Rebbe say about these shootings? I received a number of questions, so I, let me begin with that topic because it's so timely, and hopefully, like Tukum Paimayim, we shouldn't have to go through anything like this again, but everything that happens, as the Rambam says, is a lesson, it would be cruel for us not to look into our hearts and souls and see what we can do about this. So there's the debates go on about gun control on one side of the aisle, and others about mental health, and then maybe some other stuff in creating security and more 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 uh, more uh, 
um, defense mechanisms and whatever is necessary to protect children. I'm not even going to get into that. If that's helpful, go ahead by all means. By all means, to do it and to do whatever is necessary to protect our children. But from a, talk, from a perspective of Teda and a perspective of Chassidus, we always know there's symptoms and there's roots. We, what is the root of the issue? And this by no means negates not to deal with the symptom. Obviously, if someone has mental health issues, shouldn't have a gun in their hands. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. In general, young people shouldn't have guns in their hands. The fact that there is a Second Amendment and it has its, it has its other limitations. So it's also completely irrational that only the Second Amendment becomes the most important thing on earth, that everybody has to gun, the most important thing in America. But I'm not even going there. And obviously that, that has to be dealt with in a proper way. But what is the root of an issue? Is it the gun that kills people or is it people that kill people? And again, mental health, absolutely deal with it. A troubled student. Just, people should be, watch and be careful and see. You know, we have doors of Egla Arufa that a community is responsible for things that happen, even if it's a criminal in their community, they're responsible for that person. So we need to be extra careful and sensitive. And if we see something and we see someone that needs help, a loner or someone who's complaining or someone who's posting negative things, obviously we need to have a system. But is this still not the root? The root goes back, and this is something almost not mentioned in all the media, with all the 24-7 media, you don't hear this. I haven't heard it at least. And that is something that the Rebbe Befeder spoke about time and again, especially in the early 80s and throughout the 80s that the key thing in education is not information and not knowledge and not data, but to know there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. Accountability to a God that created us. The whole Ten Commandments, with all the simple things, do not kill, do not murder, do not steal, is based on And that's why the Rebbe advocated a moment of silence, which dealt with the issues of separation of church and state. It's not a saying a prayer, it's a moment of silence. Every student can do as they see fit. And the Rebbe spoke about it in this context. Without it, he says, you create a jungle. Look what's going on in the schools. You see students hitting teachers. Also refer to different weapons and using all kinds of things similar to what we're having now. And what is the real most preemptive thing? To teach children the sanctity of life to teach children the accountability we have to each other, and it's not frivolous. We live in a world where, you know, let us speak about God. I saw this, it's a famous one, but it just strikes again. Dear God, why do you allow so much violence in our schools? Signed, a concerned student. Dear concerned student, God replies, I'm not allowed in schools. The battle to get God out of the schools. The thing the children need most is the foundation, all wisdom is worthless. If you don't have the aspect of accountability, the recognition of the sanctity of your life, of other people's lives, that you just don't, life is valuable. You can't just hurt people. But violence, we have in every film, in every television show, guns are completely um, everywhere. They're, they're almost idealized in, in, in media and film, video games. So fine, you'll say it's only a game. But are we at least teaching them also about accountability, about responsibility, to counter our, the amount of attention and the marketing that goes on in uh, video games or violence in our uh, media and in our uh, society. Is there at least a counter for every 
exposure to that, do they get an exposure to an equal measure of sanctity of life, a sense of sensitivity to others, and so on? Now, does that guarantee? No, we know people who believe in God and also did things that are wrong. But we're talking here, like the Rebbe spoke about the mezuzah with a helmet. If you want to heighten and lower the, the, the risks and heighten the chances that this doesn't happen, is this has to be infused in children. So this is the single thing that the Rebbe speaks about. And I'll tell you the exact sikhs. I mean, there are many sikhs, but just a select few that where he spoke about it very strongly. Yud Aleph Nissen, and especially Yud based Thomas Tovshin Mem Aleph. Look at the Yud based Thomas Sikh, and the Rebbe speaks about what's going on in schools today as a result of the lack of this type of recognition. Also, Vov Tishrei and Yud based Thomas Tovshin Mem Dalad, and Chofov Tovshin Mem Vov. There's more. But those are very elaborate and very fundamental. And with the point with the ultimately moment of silence ingrained that every day in the morning you acknowledge that there's something greater than you are. And you're accountable to it is the single greatest step we can all take to preempt, thing, preempt things like this. Is it absolutely guarantee? We all know there's no such thing. But if you talk about the single most important thing more than anything else it's that. Because then a person will not even go pursue finding a gun or would even have such, harbor such thoughts to go hurt some other people. At least let's try it. At least let's talk about it. That's the sad thing. You don't hear about that. It gets down to a political thing. Everyone says, we're not going to be political anymore. Children, look at the funerals. Young people. And everybody cries over it and yells and all that. <coughs> Excuse me. And then they gravitate back to everyone in their positions, gun control, and Mr. Trump doesn't, President Trump doesn't mention gun control, or the other extreme, mental health, and that becomes a discussion. I think the point has been made, I don't need to elaborate more, very clear, and this absolutely belongs in Chassidus applied, even though you'll say it's not the deepest levels of Chassidus, you know what? That without that, all wisdom, can be used in the wrong way, as the Rebbe always gives the example with the Nazis. Yimach Shimon. Well, that what? That they had doctors and professors and literature and music and art and romance and so on. They were not a third world backward country. And look what they used all their technology for. To find the most efficient ways to murder innocent people. To experiment on human beings without anesthesia. This is when you're lacking the Anoichi Hashem in microcosm, this is what happens in any society, even a society like the United States, which is built on the principle in God we trust. All men are created equal, all people are created equal and are endowed with those rights, but you have to enforce that. You have to reinforce it, I should say. Reinforce it in our schools, in our children. Every moment, it's never enough, especially with all that's going on out there, whether it's in sports or in fantasy um, games or video games or all the other parts of our culture that, that deify fighting and battling and wars and weapons and so on. Okay. Let's move to something a little more um, calmer topic. The question is, isn't the Bar Mitzvah too difficult for our children? I just started learning the Bar Mitzvah with my son. It just dawned on me that it's a really deep and hard mimer to understand. 
He has a very hard time to learn by, learn it by heart, to learn by heart in general. So I suggested to him that he does not need to say it verbatim, like Tanya, etc. As long as he's able to say it over in his own words in Yiddish. My problem is of it's so if, if my problem is of it's so deep, how can he possibly do it? Also, in general, a boy just turning 13, how is he expected to study such a deep mimer? Wouldn't it make sense for him to study something more simple like chapter 32 in Tanya, etc.? Okay. Very good question. I had the honor of the similar honor when my son was by mitzvah to learn with him the mimer. So I will say, I'll speak on a personal note, which I think is also relevant to all of us. There's many aspects, many advantages, many, many qualities in learning something. It's not only purely the understanding of it. In the case, let's say, of this, about Mitzvah Maimah, it's a tremendous opportunity of a bonding. It's one of the first things your son is going into, entering into maturity, into becoming a gadol, and what kind of a schus and honor for a father to sit with his son. So even if it's not fully understood, even if it's a deep Maimah, that alone has tremendous value. The effort made, and the son never forgets it. We don't forget those special moments and remember our father's involvement. So that's number one. Number two, it's a mimer that the Rebbe Rashab said at his bar mitzvah. Friedrich Rebbe said at his bar mitzvah, which is one of the, which is one of the primary reasons why we say that mimer. So you're connecting with the Rebbe, the Moshe Rebbein of our generation. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a very good thing, a powerful thing. Thirdly, Chsidis Bechlal. Does anyone understand Chsidis to its fullest extent? Yes, you can find an easier chapter in Tanya maybe, or easier mimer. But everything is, always has deeper dimensions, especially in Chassidus. So if you're going to go based on what we understand, as the Rebbe once told somebody, you're not understanding we're all equal. In understanding this one knows a little more, this one needs a little less. But to have the exposure, it's like going into water. A father's supposed to teach the son, for example, to swim. It doesn't have to become the master swimmer the first time they go swimming, but you've entered into the water. You're initiating your son in this rite of passage called by mitzvah into the world of Chassidus. All the chassidus that Abayim and Moshe and Nefesh gave their lives to give us these mamarim, all the mamarim. Why? Because they felt this is the single most important thing that gives us the tools and life skills to align ourselves with what God wants of us, to passionately and premiusedic in an internalized and, and an exciting way connect with what God wants of us and to ultimately bring Osimar to Malka Mashiach. So you're initiating your son with chassidus. So maybe, yeah, fine, we're not master swimmers yet, but you entered the water. You gave a taste. And you try the best. And every mimer, if you look at it, you'll learn there are always things you can learn from it. I, a few weeks ago, I spoke about a yechidus from Rabdovid Raskin. And the Rebbe said, it's more important to take a bechain that relates to you than understanding all the words of the mimer. So the key thing here is learn the mimer. Find there's some things are deeper, some things less deep, and find something that you can take out from the mimer. The main, the main, for example, theme of this mimer is that fillin. Replace is, allows us to do something that Taylor does. We want to learn Taylor all day and night, but we don't have time. So it's film, which you don't have to do day and night, has the power, So find a way to explain Mechen the godless, that a son, a child is entering by mitzvah, but for girls it's bas mitzvah, 12. What does Mechen mean? What is this new level of Mechen? Find a way to explain it, that you're entering a new place, a new level of intelligence, a new level of maturity, a new level of responsibility, Different examples, you're now entering the world where you are going to begin to be mashpi on the world around you. Find one thing from the mimer. That's all that's necessary. As far as chazering it, some chazer word for word and try to memorize it 
as many of us did. I'm not going to tell everybody you have to do it that way. If a child finds that difficult, do the best you can. Maybe it's the flow of the ideas. Maybe it's saying some of it that way. Maybe with a little help. The key here is not to put a child under pressure, which unfortunately is also part of a problem that there's so much pressure to say every word exactly. And if not, you haven't been... You have to make the child remember this day as the most special day. And however they do it, it's excellent. You don't expect a 13-year-old to understand chassidus bechlal, like they'll understand it when they turn 15, 16, 17, and older. But you're getting them initiated. There's a point you have to begin somewhere. So these are my general responses to this. And not so much, it's not so scientific that we're going to look for the exact perfect maimed. It's a whole process of initiating someone into the world of chassidus, of primis which is so vital, especially today, in creating passionate Jews, not just mechanical ones, that we don't just do mitzvahs anoshim ulamada robotically and by rote, but it's filled with passion, filled with apnimius. Find a way to instill that in your child on this special day. So many people get bar mitzvah and it's a, uh, okay, it's a rite of passage. And many, for many people, okay, the day passes and we move on. Make it memorable by showing, you know, something, you've now reached a place where you can appreciate Yiddishkeit and a new dimension. Find a way. That's the challenge. Find a way to make that mimer. Maybe someone submitted an essay this year, how to make the bar mitzvah mimer relevant and personal in that sense. I can give examples, but I'd rather hear some from some of you. Maybe give some examples. How can we make this mimer, a vort in the mimer, a thought in the mimer, relevant to us? And guaranteed you'll find the answer. If you can do the entire theme of the Maimon, by all means, but even one point, and then the child goes into not just chazing the Maimon, they can give over, and that's what I would work on, a message. What did this Maimon is a message for everyone that comes to the Bar Mitzvah. A message for the child, a message for the family, a message for the guests, for relatives. Then you've made the Maimon, you've internalized it and applied it in a personal way. What greater way to honor a Maimon especially in connection with the Bar Mitzvah. So I hope I answered the question. And uh, do the best you can, but make it positive. Everything should be positive and meaningful, and the lessons derived and learned from this. Okay. Next question. Can we understand God? It's interesting. We had questions about explaining evil, explaining the Holocaust, and so on. But I don't recall actually a question directly, can we understand God? What's the question? In your book, referring to the book Toward a Meaningful Life, I'm assuming, on the question, why do we exist? Why didn't you write that the real ultimate reason why God created the world is higher than our capability since we are talking about God and we are human limited beings? I do understand on one hand that God can't need anything. But on the other hand, why make us if it would be just as fine without us. So you can't say they just wanted us, but it's deeper. You can't say they just wanted us, but it's deeper. He needs us. Otherwise, to what use are we if he just wanted us? That just sounds like God is bored and wanted a new toy. So there are many episodes I've discussed this, especially episode 10, especially this discussion whether God needs us. I also discussed, I don't have here marked that particular episode, but it's very easy to find when you search. So I'll answer the question in this context. There's many ways to take this. Obviously, but God's thought is not, my thought is not your thought, God says. We don't, God is beyond our comprehension and beyond comprehension altogether. He created logic and created intelligence. So of course he's beyond it. 
However, the, such a fundamental element in Kabbalah, and especially in Chassidus, is that the same God that's beyond intelligence manifested himself in intelligence. Just like we say, since he shaped the eye, does he not see? That doesn't mean God has eyes, but if he shaped intelligence, he created intelligence, means he also has intelligence. And that's why you have the Maral Taka says, famous Machlekes Maral says about the Rambam says, God is one with his wisdom, with his knowledge. Whereas we human beings are not. The Maral says, God is beyond knowledge. Explains the Alta Rebbe in Tanya, a number of places, starting from Patek Beis and others in Muna, that the higher than Ishtalshlis, God is beyond knowledge. But then he manifests himself in Chochmeh and Bina and Das. That's the Sphiris. And Iyu v'chayu yichad, Iyu v'gamuyichad. And he is one with his knowledge. And through Teda, which is really Shashuyim, Shashuyim l'fanov, which means God's playthings, they're, they're Tainuk, they're beyond Seichel, but they're manifest in Chochmeh. And when we learn Teda, we're bonding and connecting with God's mind. So yes, there are elements that we are beyond our understanding, but God wanted us to understand, and therefore he himself put himself in understanding. And when we study Teda, we are bonding and uniting with the, the godly, the divine wisdom within the Teda. This is a fundamental chassidus. So therefore the answer is, why do, why, why do we exist? Yes, there's Nesava, Kodesh Baruch Hu, I believe I write that in my book, more than once. Nesava, the Alter Rebbe says, kasha. He desires, it's higher than Kasha. Why? Because the idea of logic, of an answer, a need, or a, in any other way of explaining it with reason, that itself was created. That's part of the Nisavah. He desired a world which has intelligence, and in that world he wanted to have a dira, a home, a dwelling place. But then that same Nisavah also wanted intelligence. And therefore, as the Rebbe explains in a number of places, therefore he also gave us reasons why he created the world. Whether teva tev lehetiv, because someone that's naturally good creates good, we'll talk about that. Does good, we'll talk about that a little later in the chassidus question, or legalish which means to reveal the completeness of his of his of his faculties, or begin in order that for us to know him, and the different reasons given in Kabbalah and chassidus that are on the level of the of the lower levels where intelligence does come into play. So everything in Teda has an element that's beyond our knowing. But then that itself manifests in knowledge. And the ultimate of knowledge is to know that not only that you don't know, but even to know the unknowable. So that's the answer, that there is absolutely explanations that we can relate to. And ultimately, Nasavit, which also we can understand that God is beyond logic, he desires. It's not a desire like we desire, because God doesn't have that type of desire, but it's in order to shachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachach
So don't, if you haven't heard an answer to your question, it will be answered, but in the coming weeks. And um, as you see, some of these questions came in months ago, but we're going in order. So here's the question, how to be an emotionally warm person. This was, it's referring to something I did, what was called soul workout. Talked about being emotionally warm. So the writer writes, this was a nice message you gave, but I found the title very misleading. It's not how to be a warm person, it's really why you should be a warm person. That's what I discussed. I would love to see a clip on how to be a warm person. Okay. So the why is obvious because when we're warm people, we connect with each other, we create unity. And in general, you see when people are warm and they're compassionate and they're loving and nurturing, it brings the best out of us. So however we explain it, the bottom line is it is healthy for the human organism, the human condition to be that way. How to become is recognizing that you have it within you. Because you have a soul, you're not just a physical body. You're not just an inanimate piece of clay. You have a soul. A soul has faculties. It has meichen and has midas. That's by, by birth, as he explains in Tanya. So we have the emotions there. Just like I spoke earlier about the moisture within us. It has to be activated. It has to be activated in a positive way. So we are naturally warm human beings, and we're naturally social human beings. The how is by focusing on it, making sure that you don't focus, don't, don't, you're not narcissistic and selfish. You're giving, you're looking out to help others. This comes from the early childhood. We teach our children to be helpful to others, to be share, to be kind, to be sensitive. It's something we all naturally have, but we also have the Nevesh Abamis, which also has emotions. And its emotions are me, me, me. So this is essentially the basis of Haltanya is that we have a battle and you become warm by acting on it and understanding the importance of it and, and catching yourself when you're not behaving that way. In other words, your thoughts and speech and actions should reflect the warmth of your divine soul, the warmth of other people. And that's something with, with a deliberate and intentional approach where we're conscientious of it and we catch ourselves when we're behaving not that way. That's the way you do it. It's not that complicated. It takes simas lev. That's what it means. You have to apply yourself to it. Okay, next question. A lot of individual questions here. Books about tips of life. Do you recommend reading secular self-help books? Do you recommend, is it appropriate reading books like The Subtle Art of Not... That's one of the best sellers. I I can't read the full word, but The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Or Men Are From Mars and other such books. The real question is, can one love without these books and just extract everything from chassidus and apply it to your life. Oh, by the way, back to the emotionally warm uh, person, I want to just refer, cross-reference you to episodes 55 and 64. Let's go back now to the books. I have talked about, in general, whether we can find everything in Torah or do we need secular wisdom in episodes 24, 25, and 26, episode 49, and episode 90, and even more than that. But those were very focused on that topic. This is not exactly the same question. You're not talking about secular education. Generally speaking, the answer is everything is in Teda. God looked into the Teda and created the world. And therefore, you could find the answers, like he says in Tanya, in the introduction, all the Aitzis advice necessary in the issues that we are dealing with, our personal issues. The fact is, however, like he says there in the introduction in Tanya, it's not, if you have difficulty doing so, go to the Gedalim Shabir, to the mature people, is the way I interpret it, of your city, mentors, 
mashpim, people who can help you find that answer in Tanya. So it's all there. This is really one of the, one of the principles of, of my life, Chassidus Applied, that we can find these answers, and we do so every week, looking at different topics and doing so. Now, is it always easy? No, it's not always easy. Sometimes you can't find it directly. Would I say then go to secular books? No, I'll tell you why I would say that, because it is there. And keep turning the pages. And if you don't find it, it's because you're missing something. So I would say we could find it. Now, if someone read a book, and I, I'll tell you, I could confess my own sins. I have read secular books, yes, in my life. That's because whatever, my own flaws. And sometimes a secular book can actually say it easier than you'll find it in the when you do so, the Alter Rebbe gives an example of that you can use secular wisdom as well to serve God and sometimes find answers. Do you have to do it? If possible, I would avoid it because it has other side things and, and, and often distortions and so on. But I'm not trying to be here extreme and be machmir. Listen, let's be honest and, re- and realistic. People are not asking me whether they should read newspapers or books. You know, I don't think people see me as such an authority. If you have such a question, go to your mashpia, go to your rov. You'll probably hear from them the exact. I'm not here to tell you not to. I'm sorry, not here to tell you to do it, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that the standard is definitely that we don't need to do it. But I know realistically people do. So the question is, if you're doing so anyway, then try to use it for, for Avedis Hashem. If you're able to find an exodus, absolutely, go that way. So I, bottom line, do not feel you need to do it. Uh, it's out there. We live in a culture, and sometimes not even reading a book. You read an article, you read something else, you suddenly see a thought, and people quote these thoughts. Even you find in the Torah world, people quote sometimes a line that came from a different place, which is not a Torah place. Chochma bagoyim taimen. It does exist. But we're talking the standards. As I often discuss the standard. The standard is you don't need to find it there. If someone happens to read them because they're, whatever reason, they're reading other stuff, so... After the fact, you read it, use it for the Vedas Hashem and Gedusha and so on. There are things I've read outside, but I try not to allow that to shape and define, because Chassidus has its, its approach, its model. What you can sometimes find in other books, you find sometimes is language. The language has been developed. Just like in psychology, in secular psychology, there's modalities, there's methodologies that have been developed. Whereas even though there's much more profound and much purer the psychology of chassidus, but it hasn't been turned into a modality that you can use in a therapeutic environment. And halavai, we should develop that. That's one of the goals, of, obviously, of both this program and other work that I do in order to try to achieve that. So the answer, I think, is clear. And um, halavai, it should only be such books. People read books that shouldn't be reading altogether, things that are forbidden, and things that are also, and that have no value except for your, your giving in to your own tivus, your own temptations. Books like this that have value, as I said, the Rebbe explains the conditions of how one can read or learn it and derive from that. But still the standard is try to find an Chassidus. I work very hard to look in Chassidus and not go search elsewhere. But sometimes I will. I'll make a Google search. Let's say a topic comes up and people want to know, let's say, about, um, about uh, let's say, anger. So even though it's all in Chassidus, but sometimes you find something in the, in, the, in, the, in the secular world that can help language, can help put things into context. And then, then if you're doing it, especially if you're doing it as a profession, you want to be thorough, it could be helpful in that way. There's more to say about it, but that, I think, covers it up. Covers it. There's follow-up. There's a lot of follow-up. A lot of follow-up. 
to the abusive parent discussion last week, and I will go through that right now. And I see the other follow-up I may not have time to do, but let's see as best as we can. Okay. Abusive parent. Last week we spoke about do we have the responsibility to respect an abusive parent, to invite them to a chuppah of our children, another such situation. And I'm not going to review what I said. It's all there last week's episode, 201. So here's a few, a selection of tens and tens of responses that came in. It really touched a chord, I guess, in people, and I'm sad to hear that, that it's so prevalent, unfortunately. So here's one writer writes, titles it, Written with Hesitation but Relief. I heard your question on parental abuse. When I was a kid, up until graduating from elementary school, my father would test me on what I studied and inevitably be dissatisfied with my comprehension. Despite doing well on school tests, I failed his, and he would slap me hard across the face with anger, most often in sight of my siblings and even other people in shul. It was very painful and humiliating. My whole childhood was a big trauma, and I would view life as Sunday being counted down to six days to hell. Monday, five days, until Friday night, the zero hour. In addition, he would often give secondary punishments for falling, for falling short of his Shabbos test expectations. Tragically, Shabbos, that should be the most exciting day for a child, was my most dreaded day. I'm older, in my, I'm older now, in my mid-30s, married, kids, on shlichus, Baruch Hashem, and have my life's challenges, and still don't understand which of them, if any, can be attributed to childhood trauma. Incidentally, my siblings were spared of this humiliation, so I was clearly the black sheep. It's interesting that my father is actually very kind outside the family and taught me and other virtues. I never saw him abusive to my mother. I don't, I don't understand what motivated his rage toward me. In certain ways, I'm more disappointed in my mother that she didn't stop him. Although I could tell his behavior toward me bothered her. After a decade of marriage, it was only this month that I divulged to my wife the horrors of my childhood, and only because it came up by means of conversation where it was relevant. I still love my parents, and I pray that my father has remorse for how he treated me. He is loving today. My greatest wish is that he would ask me forgiveness so I can weep until I feel better and the matter as resolved as can be. As of now, it's 20 years since those traumatic tests, and we've never spoken about it since. It would be too painful to bring it up, though my wife wishes that I would. So is it okay just to accept that it's too painful, to raise and resolve and just keep the horrors as past swept under the rug? If you address this in a future episode, please be vague in details as to not to risk my anonymity. I hope I did that. I did change some things. Oh man, my heart goes out to you. I don't know what to say. This is just so heart-wrenching to read. I read it because it's important to read. I think it's important to people to know. It's important parents to know. That sometimes you may think you have all the best intentions and you can be destroying a person's life. I'm glad you built your family. I'm glad you have shlichus. I'm glad you're able to forge ahead. I don't really have a black and white answer to you. I would say it depends. If you're able to some way get your father to have a conversation about it, I would maybe try. If it's too painful for you, I would not go there to cause yourself more pain. Clearly it's part of who you are. If it's not affecting your wife and your children and your family and your work, and it's one of your dark demons and dark memories, 
then maybe reason to leave it be. Not because we're ignoring it, because you have, bottom line, you're functioning and you're growing. So there's too many questions I have before I can tell you whether you should go push it and try to so-called address it and uh, rock the boat. Um, this happens, it's, it's not uncommon that a parent will pick on one child, but it's really their issue, not yours. That's the thing, their own anger. And the parent does not own their children. It's just so sad to hear this. It's a gift that God gives parents. So when, since when do parents think they own their children? Like it's their property? You can do whatever you want with your child. You're given a gift. Be sensitive to the gift. Be loving. Look what, what a parent can do. And this is not even the worst type of abuse. So my heart goes out to you. I'm glad that you wrote to me. I'm glad that you're able to speak about it. And I would hope that everyone who's gone through similar things is able to find someone to speak to. That, I think, is definitely key. So if you told me you hadn't spoken to your wife or to anyone, I would say that, that now you need to have a release. It needs to be expressed. Whether to go back to your father or mother, that's a question whether you're going to just be hurt further. There's no reason for that. Yeah. Another person writes, what constitutes an abusive parent? Does a parent who is being mistreated by a spouse who prefers not to discuss with, with the children, but the children feel that the abused parent is abusing the children, while not being aware that this parent is not getting any financial nor emotional support from their spouse and must find a way to take care of the family in any way possible and try to keep the family afloat. This, what constitutes an abusive parent is very simple. Any type of demoralization, violation, disrespect of the life of another person is abusive, period. The Alter Rebbe speaks even about atzvus to yourself, you shouldn't be abusive. Atzvus as a demoralized feeling that you feel like you're worthless makes you weak and you can't accomplish anything. It's coming from the Yetzir Hara. That's what abuse is. And everything that fits under that rubric is in the context of abuse. Another people wrote, this would have been every, when... Uh, this would have been when everything was swept under the rug and no one made anything public. And I'm glad that you're addressing this publicly because that causes us to be able to heal and grow through it. Okay. Many abusive fathers use this kind kibud av mantra. It is extremely abusive and damaging. If they, can't, if they can't treat their children with basic decency, one should not have to respect them. They use this as a ploy and tactic to be listened to. Then the kids feel guilty for by, for, by, by listening for listening to them because they realize that they're hurting themselves in the process. Another person writes, wow, thanks. Baruch Hashem, we have a wise rabbi. We are blessed. And then there were many other such comments and questions. I don't have to comment on all of them. Pretty much they were all very supportive of addressing this issue. And clearly it's much more prevalent than I would have imagined. And I'm glad that we use this forum to talk about it. The goal, of course, is, is not we're not looking to hurt anyone. We're looking, on the contrary, to bring a topic to the table that both parents, and then when we become parents, should make sure how sensitive we should be. And those of us that have been traumatized should find ways and outlets to be able to heal from that. Okay. Let me go to the Chassidus question of the week. And we will deal with the other topics that were advertised next week. The Chassidus question is, why is Hashem good? Last week we talked about 
why we ask if hidden goodness has greater strength than concealed goodness, so why do we ask, why do we bless people to have revealed goodness? So as a follow-up, someone asked the question, let's go even better. Why do we assume that God, why do we assume that God is absolute goodness? The expression is that God is etzimatev, etzimatev lehetiv. That's an expression from Emek HaMelech and other places. That God is the essence of good, and the nature of good is to do goodness. So the questioner asks, I know that I'm asking a common question, but I'm still struggling with the answer. Why is, the fact, why is it a fact that Hashem is only goodness? There's a second part to this question. So let me read that, and then I'll answer them both. Also, I've been recently learning in a mimer that it, that it takes a mitzvah, and re'usa deliba, re'usa deliba is the desire of the deepest part of the heart, to connect to atzmus, the core of God, godliness. So before I get excited that I've just learned the formula of what it takes to connect to atzmus, I ask myself, what is atzmus? Knowing that one can get slapped trying to answer this question. To me, I close my eyes and I see nothing where all of existence just gets absorbed into its source, where nothing exists. That's how I view Atmos, naively and ignorantly so. Can you please shed some light on these ideas, Hashem's goodness, and what it means to connect to Atmos? Thank you for providing clarity to the Jewish world. Okay. Yes. It's a very good question. It is a klutz kasha in a way that people don't ask, because you would assume God and goodness are one and one, one and the same. But we know, once you start learning Chesidus, and you know that Atmos, Muhus, is higher than every Gedder and every Tziur. That's the language Chesidus used. It's higher than any definition and every categorization. Everything we categorize, good, intelligent, nice, beautiful, these are all creations. It didn't have to be that way. So everything is called a definition, a Tziur, a Toyar, when we say even Anoichi is Le Islam is Le Bishume is Le Bishum Kates. Even Havai is a name that already has a meaning, has an expression, Yudke Vovke, Havaya Maloshamahava, Hoyoivikechod. That's uh, that it unites past, present, and future, meaning higher than time. But that's also a definition. And then you have the expression of Samarvov and cited in other places that God is Shlil Sahiu, Vishlil Sashlila, Vishlil Sashlila. And you can't define him not by saying he's this. You can't define him by saying he's not this. You can't even say, but he's not, not this. Because all that is, at the end of the day, some type of definition, even if it's, a, even if it's extrapolating, meaning he's not. That's why it's a critical when we look at this and to be very careful with language. And we say clearly the expression, we say it only because we have no other word to use. Even bleak vul. God bleak vul. We know he also has the power of vul. Exodus talks about this. Can you call God a creator? Says It's not the primary thing of the divine to create worlds. Can you God call God a luminary, a source of light? Because Alakus can't be defined by anything that this is him. You can't even say him. So when it comes to, we have very limited language. Exodus talks about this at length. And yet, Yet, that same God, that is the Etzem, chose to create these definitions and chose to manifest in them and manifest in the names. As we say in the Medrash, that according to my Maisim, that's how I'm called. When God behaves compassionately, it's Havaya. When he, comp- he sits on Midas Adin, it's discipline and, and, and Gevura, it's uh, Elakim, Kael is Chesed. Just to give examples, you have the ten spheres I mentioned earlier, Chochmah, Bin Adas. But this is God choosing to manifest 
So when we talk about Atzmos Mamesh, in Tere Shalom, he says we rarely talk about Atzmos. When we're talking about something, as soon as you talk about it, you're no longer talking about Atzmos Atzmos, because nothing can, anything we say is already a limitation. Even when you say no limitation, even when we say what I'm saying now. So there are the expressions, built in Metzius Nimtza. That Atzmos is a Metzius, built in Metzius Nimtza, which is from the Rambam means, and a non-existential existence. You can't say he exists, but you can't say he doesn't exist. So you say he does not not exist. He exists, but not in an existential way as we understand existence. You have the expression, Metziusim Atzmusei, in Ageres Akedah Simechov, that his existence comes from within himself. He compels his existence. Everything else is put there by someone, by the Creator. He, Metziusim Atzmusei. You have Mechuyev Ametzius. He must exist. Everything else is Afsharius Ametzius. I can go on and on in the, in the different discussion on this matter, but I just wanted to put that in context. So when we say goodness, is God good? Well, you can't say he's bad, because that's also a toyer. So you say he's not good, he's not bad, he's beyond it all. And the whole concept of good and evil doesn't exist. But the fact is, however, that godliness did choose. God chose to express himself. And when he expresses himself, he expresses himself in a form of shlemus, in values. If it's a value by us, and good is a value, and evil is not a value, that value tells us that that's an expression of godliness, because godliness is not going to express himself in a thing that has no value, or a thing that has a negative value. So to say God is defined by goodness, absolutely not. But once goodness exists, yes, God manifests in goodness, and that's when you can say, So it's both at the same time. Sometimes there's an expression, what is God going to choose? Not goodness. So you'll say, one second, but there's no goodness yet to choose. But that's exactly the point. When godliness expresses himself in the world of expression and definition, it's going to be good. It's not going to be evil. It's not going to be bad. It's going to be beautiful, not ugly. Does it mean that he can create ugliness? Yes, we say he can. But we're talking about what is the natural flow. That's why Chesedus also talks about there are things that God creates and there are things that, so to speak, reflect the divine. So goodness reflects the divine. Darkness may not reflect the divine. It's a power of the divine. Then there's some places it says, that God resting places in the darkness. But I'm not going to go into that right now. But negative things you can say, or you can say things that, like we say, Chassidus says, there's an expression, it comes from the etzem, but it's not me'en etzem. So Eir, God of course is not Eir. He's beyond Eir. But when, when Eir is revealed, Eir is nothing but a revelation of the divine. A yesh, is created by God, but you can't say it's a revelation of the divine because it conceals the divine. So that's essentially the way we understand the idea of goodness. And that's why ultimately, as I discussed last week, that the Rebbe explains, a chiddush of the Rebbe, by Yigash, Chelek Hei, where he says that giluim is negei and atzmus. Atzmus wanted, and therefore his shlemus is bound that it should be revealed. Does he have to be revealed? No, atzmus can exist even when it's not revealed. But he wanted that shlemus. Why did he want that shlemus? Because it's a shlemus by us. Why is it a shlemus by us? Because that's how God desired that that should be shlemus. So therefore he has that element. And that's also part of the fulfillment and the actualization, so to speak, of the divine plan of the Nisavet desiring Adir B'tachtein. As far as Atzimus goes, I think I did connect. I did discuss it. I'll just say this. When it says, it says, No thought can grasp him at all. But Rusa Delibe, you could be Tefusim. 
Why? Because Rusa de Liba is you are not trying to understand God. You're, you're suspending yourself and allowing the inner part of your heart to so-called absorb and be bottled. And that's when you can accept and even experience something that's higher than Giluim. Your Giluim can only receive God's divine revelations. You want the Etzem, you have to suspend your Giluim, like we talked many times about Philolani, the Moshe of the Baal Shem Tov, that you have to stand like a pauper, suspend all your faculties if you want to get the Etzem. And that's a critical component as well. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to see Hashem. Hashem says, no man can see me and live. But if you don't look, I'll show you. In other words, you'll see it by not looking. The bitl allows us to reach deeper levels because we're getting rid of the tzir, of our own tzir. We're eliminating our own structures, our own definitions, and then you can experience something that's not defined and even ultimately the undefined altogether. Okay. When Mashiach comes, we're told that exactly. That person will not teach another. Everyone will know AC. Atmos. Everyone will know AC. From young to old. Or young to great to small to, to, to big. Meaning young and old. So the Rebbe's father and the Rebbe asked the question. You just said Kulim you don't need teachers. So why do you call them Ketanim Agdelam? Because each one will experience the etzim according to his capacity. So you have both elements. The structure, the hierarchy, but not a hierarchy that needs to go through others that we can directly connect to the etzim, to the essence, because the essence expresses itself in, every, in, every, in infinite different ways. As the Mitla Rebbe says, that atmos, that the highest levels actually express itself in the most diversity. Because since it's all possibilities, when it's expressed in possibilities, it'll express itself in every possible possibility. Okay. So I welcome everybody again to send in your questions to my life, Chassidus Applied, meaningfullife.com slash my life, including Chassidus questions. Everything is accepted. Nothing is taboo. Nothing is censored. Please send it all in. This has been, meaning, this has been my life, Chassidus Applied, episode 202. We're here every Sunday from 8 to 9 p.m., and always an honor and a pleasure, as I will keep you posted as well about the essay contest. Again, congratulations to all those that have submitted. And those that didn't complete it or weren't able to finish, you can always save it for next year when these essays will be submitted, not only to us, but with Mashiach Zidkenu. As we were promised, we'll bring Osimada Malka Mashiach, a very freilich and we'll be here back next Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much.